Hello, and welcome to another episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we normally discuss the similarities and differences between books and movies. <laughs> I am Laura, she, her, and I am the literature expert. And my name is Danny. I'm the film expert, pronouns he, him. That's right. This is a special episode. Yeah, you know buddy. Long Danny's had that app on his phone. <laughs> well, I I panicked because I've had it. I've had this app open and ready all day, and then of course, the minute we record, I don't <laughs> know where my phone. phone is, and I'm scrambling for it. I'm like, oh shit, where's That's, my app? And I then, was like, I was like, Danny, don't you get messages to your laptop? Like, if someone texts you. You can see it. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, this, no, I need my phone. Yeah. This, <laughs> <laughs> now I know why. It's my work laptop. This that it's oh, it's well, nice. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Well. Boy, oh boy, are we excited for this episode? I am thrilled. A long time coming. Special episodes are fun because they're shorter <laughs> than well, normal. We're, we're switching it up a bit. We're letting you our know, hair down. <laughs> That's a very deep pull from a show called Burning Love. Yeah. Which is a spoof on the Bachelor franchise. Yeah. So if you're a fan of yeah, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or Bachelor in Paradise, please watch Burning Love. It's ten times better than the original. It's so funny. It's by the guys like Ken Marino and Michael Ian Black. Yeah, that, that whole crew. The Wet Hot American Summer crew. Yeah. Basically yeah. everyone who's in that plus their spouses. Yeah, are in, in, in real life. Love. Yeah. yeah. So great, great, show. great plug for that it, show. It, it originally was released on Yahoo in like 2000. <laughs> Remember Yahoo, everyone's favorite streaming, streaming service, service that's in, still alive in 2013. today. Yeah. <laughs> Should we talk about this? Is this something that people care about? We care about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Let's it, move on. It's a great on. show. But my, my point is that I was going to say Amazon isn't letting you rent them anymore. Those. I don't know what happened. Maybe that is a... Uh, harbinger that yahoo is trying to bring back their streaming service <laughs> well good knows, luck competing but... with paramount plus am i right <laughs> how much money they're throwing at consumers to get them to subscribe gosh i will never pay for paramount plus anyway uh, Laura, why is this a special episode this is such a special episode danny and i for a while have wanted to discuss books that we want to see on the silver screen yeah that's right we have a list of five books each that we would really enjoy seeing either remade because it's been 30 plus years since they were brought to the silver screen or they just have never had the opportunity to be a movie. So that's yeah. our concept for this episode. Yeah, like full theatrical movies. Yeah, yeah. a couple of our picks have been adapted in some form, sure. but, but we are talking like full release, wide release movies yeah. coming from books that, and, that have not been adapted yet. Right. I, I just think we're in such a renaissance of cinematography, editing, uh, VFX. score, VFX, actors. I mean, what could be wanting from yes. movies Now's during the time. time period? Right. So I think that we have some really interesting picks. We don't know what each other have chosen as our top five. Yeah. But we're hoping to spend a few minutes on each because we had a lot of fun talking about our dream cast of East of Eden. Yeah. So this was an, an idea that we had since the beginning of the podcast, 
but it's something that we sort of got very interested in recently. So this is what we're giving you this week. <laughs> right. And look forward in future seasons. We want to do another special episode, movies that we wish were books. Yeah. Just because we want to talk about them on this yeah. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's our preamble to this whole show. We actually have a couple preambles because we have some things that we want to talk about too before we get into the full content. Sure. So recently, uh, we've gotten a couple comments about our podcast regarding how whitewashed our choices have been. Um, and that's totally fair. And we kind of wanted to address them on the podcast because we record so many episodes in advance that sometimes it's kind of hard to address things quickly, if you will. Um, and that's just because of the way that we've decided to structure our podcast. Like, you know, we're both very busy people. And the reason we take breaks between our series of 10 is because we just need some time to like catch up and edit and read books yeah, and read watch bo the movies. That, that's, like, that takes up most of our time reading yeah. the books. And I don't right. even read, I read about 70% of the books. Laura's reading all of them. Yeah. So yeah so. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, a lot of that lag time is just due to like the preparation that has to go into each episode. But we did want to discuss it because I think it's not fair that we just sort of continue on our pattern and not address like our thought process. Yeah. We're know? always open to feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to just dive in to sort of my thoughts about addressing uh -huh. this issue because we are aware of it. Right. Um, and even though we've recorded or released about 40 episodes, like we're still new to this and you know, we just, anyway, we want to have a conversation about it. So I think one of the reasons, so I've done a lot of thinking about this because I was aware of this sort of every single week as we were going forward, I was like, kind of in the back of my head, I was like, oh, you know what? I didn't even think about this as another white director, a white straight male director. <laughs> you know, like it, it, I w it wasn't in the forefront of my mind until I think we got a couple comments and I was like, yeah, like this should be more of a priority for me. And I think after thinking about it for a few weeks, one of the reasons that I was very hesitant to discuss books that cover the minority experience is because I don't suffer from a minority experience personally. So I, I was sort of aware that I personally kind of assumed that I might have a blind spot or a misinterpretation because I would have been like leading that discussion rather than learning from someone who's a part of that community. Right. That was in conversation we had before we, we released our very first episode, Call Me By Your Name. We weren't sure what... Mm -hmm. thoughtful commentary we had being two straight people and then same with silence of the lambs episode right we made sure to cite a podcast that brought on so uh, a trans woman who talked about her view on the film right and on our apocalypse now episode we also discussed a few black criticisms and african criticisms mm -hmm. of the piece because we're very aware that we're white cisgender people and straight. <laughs> so I just, I just wanted to acknowledge that I think I was a little bit uncomfortable with leading a discussion about those experiences. However, I've also read a lot of things online that say that you should get comfortable being uncomfortable. So I want to 
just acknowledge that Danny and I are aware of that. And we are reaching out to people actively with different perspectives that we know and acquaintances that are available during this time to get those different perspectives on our podcast. And, and we are aware that it hasn't come to fruition yet. But we are actively working on being better allies. Right. Yeah. Well said. It's certainly not an excuse. I I think that's sort of, we're acknowledging the fact that we haven't done a great job, but I'm sorry, I cut you off. (laughs) Well said, and we are making the promise going forwards to do better and to include more diverse stories. I mean, the person who called us out was right. In closing, I want to mention this for all future feedback. Uh, We have no agenda Mm. with this podcast. I'm a guy who likes movies. And Laura is a gal who likes books, and then we we talk about <laughs> books and movies. That's about it. If you're looking for anything more under the surface commentary, you're pro- we're probably not going to get that. That being said, we hope. I mean, gosh, we hope when you listen to these episodes, you understand how careful and considerate we are with certain issues. How we we hope we've made it known how we're allies to the. LGBTQ plus community to we, BIPOC we, communities. Yeah, we stand with and support the oppressed and uh, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and minority communities. It breaks my heart that anyone could assume something about us just by the choices that we've made. So yeah, th- there's no no agenda with this podcast. Uh, we, we promise to do better going forward, but we're also this is very much not a- a- anything deep. Well, and, and it, I think something that I learned is that even though I think people know me personally, I never had sort of the reality of the fact that other people listen to this outside of my friend group and my family, that I always just assume that people know who I am and that would never be an agenda that I was pushing that like, you know, white male perspectives are better or anything like that. But like, we have put this out to the public. And so it's very sure. fair that people would bring that up with us. Yeah, um, it, it know, is it's, fair. It's well, like a, a new reality for me. Like, I'm very new to this. So I, I do understand how other people could have seen that and commented because I that's something that I might have noticed too. Yes. And I hope by listening to past episodes that you see that we weren't pushing any agenda yeah. with our choices. Some of the our picks were just what books we had on hand and or what was available. Maybe that speaks to other issues, but we, we promise to do better. You know. we, yeah. yeah. And, and I think yeah. my wrapping up comment would be, if you have feedback and comments, we appreciate them. Uh, but we also specifically appreciate comments that help us reach that goal of being better. Um, I think I've have, I've personally received a few very negative, but unhelpful comments. And that is, doesn't necessarily help us be better. It sort of feels more like an attack. And we work very hard on this podcast and we want it to be a positive space for positive conversations. If we have blind spots, we want constructive feedback, not feedback that tears us down. Because I can attest to the fact that I spend so much time putting in research and effort into making this the best it can be. And I, you know, I I just like... It doesn't feel good to be shit on <laughs> um, unless there's a little bit of positivity that comes with that or, or just some constructive feedback. Does that make sense? Like, right. Yeah. I want help from other people. I don't necessarily just want to be shit on. I have a bachelor's in film and TV. Laura has a bachelor's in literature. We are self-proclaimed experts. So yeah, we have <laughs> we have a responsibility to entertain. And now we're taking on our responsibility to include more diverse stories. 
thank you for the feedback and I think now is a good time to start our special episode yeah all right Laura you're up first so what is the first book that you want to be made into a movie drum roll please thank you that's Danny banging on the card table (laughs) the first story then I'm going to pitch my log line to you as the producer at Warner Brothers (laughs) oh you're going with Warner Brothers okay sure Uh, well I don't know I'm sorry you sponsored by them what the (laughs) (laughs) I think they're the physically closest studio that we are to right now the first movie I'd like you to make for me, Arthur Less travels the world on a literary tour to numb the loss of the man he loves. That is the 2017 novel by Andrew Sean Greer. It's Less. <laughs> I'm not familiar. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderfully written short novel that came out in 2017. It was... It was Greer's first novel, and it won a freaking Pulitzer. All right. All right, <laughs> Can dude. you believe that? And it hasn't been adapted yet? Wow. I am shocked. So as I said, the synopsis that I sort of pieced together from a couple of spots and also my, my reading of it, which was a couple months ago, the main character, Arthur Less, who is a an aging writer, so it's pretty meta, he travels the world on a literary tour to numb the loss of the man he loves. So he has loved his boyfriend for a long time, but because his boyfriend is about 20 years younger than him, he starts to feel inadequate and he feels like, you know, you could find someone better than me. I'm a failing artist. You, There's more in your life than me. And so it kind of covers the themes of romance and aging and the travel cathartic voyage of self-discovery. You know, everywhere he goes, he discovers something about himself that brings him closer to where he left, which is San Francisco. And I just think that it has this really interesting conversation about aging and being in love when you're older. Absolutely. And being in love with someone who's 20 years younger and thinking you're not good enough. I think everybody in relationships at some point thinks that they're not good enough for their partner, whether there's an age gap or not. So I think it's a really endearing story. It's beautifully written very visual, and I'd like to see it made into a movie. Lore, this sounds like an Oscar movie to me. (laughs) This sounds like a critic would call it a tour de force. Doesn't (laughs) doesn't necessarily seem like my type of movie, although we just watched Nomadland Mm. last night, the current frontrunner for this year's Oscars, Mm. and I love that. So perhaps... Given the right director, given the right editing, cinematography, this this seems like it could be like a, a fun fun trip of a of a yeah, movie. Yeah, I think you're right. It is a very slow burn, but it's also a great set piece movie because Arthur Less goes all over the world to discuss the book that he's just published. So you could you could go where he goes in the book. You could go to Germany. You could go to Paris. You could go on all of these. Like you could go to Turkey. You could go to China. You could go to Japan. Like you could go to all of these countries and have these great set pieces, but have that pull of his lover, you know, pulling him back to San Francisco. And I, I just think that's a great story. And there's also the twist that his lover has an uncle who Les was sort of involved with for a while. And so there's sort of Whoa. that like push and pull of the love triangle. And you know All who right. I thought I would cast as 
the uncle because he's sort of an aggressive but flamboyant guy. I think that I would cast Mario Cantoni, who plays Anthony in Sex and the City, as that character. He's sort of that, like, older, experienced gay man Mm -hmm. who's from New York, you know? I think that would be my casting for that guy. So I just, I, I don't know who I would cast to play less or anyone else or who the director would be but I just think that would be really good casting for that one character and uh yeah I, I think that it could, it could be big it could be huge <laughs> it could be it, it's so it sounds like it'd be an indie movie probably would get distributed by a24 sure yeah, yeah. Be great films yeah so anyway that's that's my first pitch will you pick it up <laughs> And how much money will you give me for the budget? <laughs> yes, I, I will pick it up, but it seems like a risk. Five million dollars should be enough. Sure, it could be a smash hit it, with that low a budget. Maybe yeah. it'll make a director. It'll you know, or a couple. Yeah, whoever direct, or... directs that could be the next Chloe Zhao, who did <gasps> No Bad Land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for her, by the way. Yeah, applause. Go for watch that No Bad Land incre- if you can't. It's on Hulu. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right, All right you ready for my yeah. first yes. pick? Yes. What's your first? Here is the logline. Years ago, four young Native American boys went out hunting elk. They were successful, but had to dispose of the meat after they were caught by law enforcement. Now adults, something is stalking them with the intent to kill and will not stop until they are all dead. Anyone and anything that stands in its way will face a similar fate. Yeah. We're talking a horror movie coming right out of the gate hot with the 2020 novel, The Only Good Indians. I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah. That's really scary. <laughs> Written by Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah. So brand new book just yeah. came out last year. I found out about it through Twitter. There's a comedian and writer I follow, Megan Amram. And she posted that she just read this book and that it was both scary and funny and crazy and something that is completely unique. I couldn't agree more. The big reason I want this adapted, other than it just being a great kind of slasher type Mm. story, is that it's fiction about Native Americans. And I'm not saying this as some high and mighty goal as a white man to say, oh, there should be more Native American stories out there. I'm saying it as... Well, that is true, but it's also, you just don't see that. Mm. Think of one movie in the past 20 years that has been about Native Americans starring an all-Native American cast and it is not based on history. Smoke signals? That's, okay, yeah, that, uh, I mean, other than yeah, that, yeah. I mean, even... I mean, very few. Yeah, very few, and there's dances with wolves, but even that movie which was made in the 80s, that Kevin Costner is the lead character in that. I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah. this is a fully Native American story, and it's just so fun. Mm-hmm. And it's so, the culture of, so these characters are uh, Blackfeet Indians. So the Blackfeet Native American reservation is in Montana, and a stretch of it extends to North Dakota. And the story mm-hmm. takes place between Montana and North Dakota, two areas of the United States that, there are not a lot of movies about those two areas. I mean, to bring back Nomadland again, um, that movie kind of showed the certain, the forgotten areas of America. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's no better allegory for, you know, a race that have been completely forgotten and basically pushed out of America than 
Native Americans. But what I like about the story is that it's not, it doesn't hit you over the head with the allegory that Native Americans are pushed off to land that is worthless. That's in these areas of the country that have harsh weather and are just desolate. And everyone knows the raw deal that modern Native Americans have. But what's so cool about the story is that what these young characters did, hunting elk on the elders' land, to us, to like white people, that's like, okay, that's kind of a minor mm. offense and, and killing an elk, okay, you know, that's kind of icky, you know, if you don't like hunting, like sure. killing an animal like they do is like, like you know. Like we're city slickers, we don't right. hunt. <laughs> but I think the point of the story is just saying to them, to their culture, that's unforgivable. And that guilt, that grief from the sins of their past comes manifests in an actual creature, a, a slasher, if you will. Mm. And so you have that intense allegory, but you also have really fun kills. And it's just a, a, it's a great way to get both. I mean, it's modern horror. We, we talked about this when talking about mm. the Invisible Man and with Rosemary's Baby. It can be seen as just a fun horror movie or as an, an actual like metaphor for you know, whatever issue you're talking about. We talked about about how we're sort of in a renaissance of horror films. And it sounds like what you said is that you learned a lot about the cultural significance that really is lost on white people. Right. Yeah. Because we just were not immersed in that culture. Right. And it does it in a way that's not overtly preachy. It's not on the nose. It's not in your face about its themes, Mm -hmm. but it very much at every page, you know exactly what's going on in both the figurative sense and the literal. Well, it sounds yeah, yeah. I'm very excited. I knew Danny was reading that recently, so I'm very interested to pick it up now. It is not for the faint of heart. I mean, it it really... Do you think I can handle it? Do you think I can handle it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's slightly funny, a dark comedy, but it is very violent very depressing. I mean, you know, you're talking about Native Americans who are at the edge edges of the country being pushed out, literally mm-hmm. being pushed out. And so it, it, it's pretty intense, but I, I totally recommend it. Stephen Graham Jones is my new obsession. Cool. Yeah. yeah All right. Cool. I've talked too much about that. Go on to your All second right. pick. Yeah, we were trying to do five minutes per pitch, but it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> All right. My number two pitch that I'm pitching to another studio. (laughs) What's another studio? Sony. Sure. (laughs) You're the executive at Sony, and you're going to give me a budget for the story of a college-educated black man struggling to survive and succeed in a racially divided society, which is the mid-20th century United States, that refuses to see him as human, so he must code switch. I'm talking about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Oh, hell yeah. Not not H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. No, and not <laughs> the Invisible Man that we just watched that came out in 2020. Directed and <laughs> written by Lee Winnell. Okay, sure. go ahead. Uh, right, no, so I'm talking about Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel, Invisible Man. It's, it's a long one. I will admit, I think a lot of stuff would have to be taken out because this is over 600 pages. Oh, oh well, that, that's not too bad. No? Oh, well, yeah, I don't know how it is translate <laughs> into scripts, but as a book, it's very long. Oh, you know what? I forgot to mention that Les was referred to me by my aunt, so I appreciate that she suggested that I read that book. But I first read Invisible Man when I was 
taking an American literature study class in England in 2015 when I was studying abroad. So I, there's a long story about my English degree. I went to school in North Dakota. Obviously, every single class was whitewashed. And I never, I don't think I ever talked about a female author or any kind of minority author in my English lit classes about American literature. So I have a lot of gaps in my knowledge from my education, unfortunately. Um, there was just an old racist white guy that was teaching that class, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, this book had a major impact on me when I was reading it because this really touches on the unseen and unacknowledged Black American experience. And in fact, the narrator goes unnamed because I think Allison wanted to demonstrate that this is a pervasive story, that even if you're not a Black man, even if you're a Black woman or a Black gender nonconforming person, there are a lot of things that are overlapping in that experience because people tend to want to erase that identity. So I personally think that we're going through a renaissance of Black stories being told by Black directors and Black actors at this time. And I think that this would be a really interesting movie. I think it would be an incredible movie. It also is a very early example of code switching, which has become sort of a buzzword. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but it's become a very widely accepted word, I think, for minorities. And I think that this book discusses not only the need to code switch as a minority, but also the danger of code switching. Because a lot of what happens for the unnamed narrator is that he's told by his relatives that he needs to play up the stereotypes of being ignorant and uneducated as a Black person just to get by. Because that's what people expect you to be. But the danger of that is, ironically, people will then consider you that and, and sort of give you limits of how far you can go. Why? So I think that is a really important thing to discuss and, and bring attention to about how dangerous code switching can be. Right. So I also really wanted to pitch Barry Jenkins as a director. Oh, hell yeah. I think he would be great. I think that both Danny and I are really interested in If Beale Street Could Talk, which possibly yeah. is an upcoming episode. So well, you, I... Yeah, it is. <laughs> he's been on my mind. Yeah, it is. So he's been on my mind, and I think he would do a really good job with this vehicle, like Danny Ooh. taught me <laughs> to say. And I also kind of wanted to pitch casting Leslie Odom Jr. in The Narrator. Oh, that guy can do yeah, anything. I know. Like, <laughs> he's so close to an EGOT. Like, he's going to EGOT. Like, he's yeah. going to. He might win an Oscar this year for One Night in Miami. He might. I think Kaluuya is going to sure. win it over him for um, Judas and the Black Messiah. But, yeah. But he... Is, is there any Oscar buzz about him being nominated for Best Original Song? Song? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. he's probably he, going to win for that. Right. Okay. okay. So, gotcha. okay. Yeah. so this is really cool. So, Danny and I get the magazine Variety, and they sent a really awesome sample of an LP of the song that he wrote, Speak Now. It's incredible. It's so good. And and I've been listening to that on end. And so I've sort of had Leslie Odom Jr. in my mind. And he's such an incredible actor. I love him in everything I've seen him in. So I wanted to pitch him as my front runner. Directed by Barry Jenkins. How much money will you give me for my pitch? <laughs> oh, that's 
that seems like a, a solid 20 to 25 million. Barry, okay. Barry Jenkins could he do incredible could, things. Gangbusters with that. Yeah. With that. yeah. Okay. Amen. Yeah. All right. I think, I think now's the time to make that movie. Yeah. All right. All right. My number two Go. pick, The Log Line. All right. A young Pacific Islander boy overcomes his fear of the sea, the very same sea that swallowed up and killed his mother, by hollowing out a tree, making a canoe, and venturing out into the unknown. That's right. We're talking about the 1940 children's novel, Call It Courage, by Armstrong Sperry. Interesting. Have oh you... my gosh, I haven't read... Th- I haven't thought about that book in years. So, a little story time. Oh, wow. I had it read to me in my third grade class, Mrs. Gothier. This is the second time (laughs) I'm mentioning one of my favorite teachers of all time, past and present. Mm. I remember her class so well. Some of the lessons, I I mean, it's corny to say, some of the lessons I learned as a third grader, I still think about today. But Call It Courage is such an amazing book, and it's crazy that it's a kid's book, looking mm-hmm. back at it, because the themes of it are so intense and it's so violent. I mean, the main character, his name is Mufatu. Mm-hmm. It's uh, kind of coming back to me. Like, right. I'm pretty sure I read it's this. It's an incredible in book. And for all you view, all you listeners thinking, oh, it's, it's a kid's book. Like, why is Danny bringing up a kid's book? No. This is about as adult as you can get for a kid's book. So our young badass Mufatu... Try, I mean, it, the the book opens up with his mother being killed by the ocean. I mean, mm. that is heavy stuff. And when I was reading it in third grade, I'm not saying that my mom or Mrs. Gothier, they're being irresponsible by reading this to kids because it is a kid's book. But I found just these themes of grief and loss and fear. In third grade, I remember thinking, man, I, I'm just not reading stories like this. This Mm. is kind of new to me. Uh, Why are authors shying away from these really intense themes? I was I was eight years old and I'm like craving this. It it felt kind of naughty to me, you know, that it was like Mm. off limits that I'm reading about death Mm. and like depression. It, It was very new to me. And so he and my favorite movie is The Truman Show. And in that movie, Truman Burbank is afraid of the sea as well. So maybe I'm just oh, have an affinity yeah, for <laughs> movies about characters who are afraid of the sea and then face their fear head on by traveling into the sea and to the unknown. And well, it's very Moby Dick too. Yeah, and so this young character Mufatu goes into the ocean. He crash lands, gets stranded on an island, and this island is an island of cannibals. As a third grader, I was just like, there's nothing more intense than this. People that eat people, holy crap. And I think, honestly, I think if this book was adapted into a PG-13 movie, it it would be pretty rad. Because Mufatu faces off against cannibals. He faces off against a killer whale, a wild boar, an octopus, and he kills... this this guy kills him like with a spear that he oh. forges from the forest. And how old is the main character? I he was uh, he's also eight or nine. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I might have that wrong. He might be ten, but he, he's young. Yeah, is the yeah. point. And th- there's a passage in the book where he's escaping from. He, he comes across this altar, and he realizes that the altar is made out of bones, human bones, mm. and then. The cannibals ambush him and he's running away and just barely escapes. And again, it's a kid's book. One of the most intense, thrilling stories I've ever read. 
and it's only been adapted into like a cartoon movie but it's not even like stop motion it's like certain stills and then there's a narration behind it it's really weird Mm. but Hmm. the novel's only 100 pages but it could make for an amazing movie that would appeal to both young adults and adults and kids to show you know there's the message of facing your fears there's the message of letting go so yeah, it's just an incredible story. I, I can't believe that I read it at, at eight years old, it, hmm. being how intense it is, but it, it's lovely. And Mrs. Gothier, if you're listening to this, what an incredible person you you were and are in, in my life. Hmm. I, I have fond memories of that year and of this story. So nice. call it courage. Yeah. Uh, any Pacific Islander director, I think, could do a, a bang up job with this. Very cool. Um, yeah. All right. What's your number three pick? My number three. This is a big one. Here's my pitch. A next-door neighbor discovers the horrific crime scene of the Clutter family's murder, and the murderers are cold as shit. That's right. I'm talking about In Cold Blood, Truman Capote's 1966 thriller-slash-true-crime expose i mean this novel so this is the first remake on the list yes so yeah yeah, i was yeah i was gonna mention that so this novel is widely considered one of the first true crime pieces that got people interested in the true crime genre i mean we're literally in the golden age of true crime dramas I, i mean literally turn netflix on there's 80,000 <laughs> docuseries. I mean, the Staircase, Murder Among the Mormons, The Night Stalker, Cecil the Hotel. Ripper, Cecil Hotel. I mean, you could go on and on, and that's just Netflix. Yeah. It was turned into a movie in 1967, but I just think that this could be incredible. I mean, so <laughs> my journey with this book is that I'm an idiot. I read this at my grandma's house and she lives in North Dakota, sort of in the middle of nowhere. And this book takes place in Kansas in the middle of nowhere and an entire family, which is true. This is a true story. The Clutter family was murdered by two men in cold blood, but not only were they murdered for the safe that was supposed to hold a bunch of money, they were like tortured and brutally separated and murdered by these two outlaws. Like, it is fucked up. Like, this entire movie is bloody as fuck. And I just think that, again, this could be, like, the new, I don't know, Night Stalker. (laughs) Yeah. um, Not only that, but it's, like, true crime within true crime within true crime. Because not only were these murders real, it also sort of drove Truman Capote a little crazy when he was doing the research into this novel who by the way he also sort of leaned on harper lee to read this i don't know how many people know that they were childhood friends but they were so it kind of drove him a little mad while doing the research for this novel it also is a little bit blurry about what is fact and what is fiction in this novel because he did sensationalize it a little bit but not by much like i've googled the pictures of this murder scene and it is gnarly like it is yeah it's intense that was a big point of the movie capote that came out 
people were questioning Capote about, like, what is this novel? It's fiction, but it's also not. And I believe, what was the term that came out of this book? It's like true fiction, right? Yeah. Well, and actually, speaking of Nomadland, it's very similar. Right. Third mention of it. Or Sound of Metal. Hey, Sound of Metal, too, where you have people who are experiencing the same thing as the actor who's in the main role. Yeah. But they're surrounded by people who live that lifestyle. And so it's supported by true facts where the main thread of the piece is is not necessarily based in true fact. So yeah. I just think that this would be sensational. I think that some of the themes it covers is like the complications of the American dream, um, obviously suspense and status and ego and morality. Like there's just so much going on here because the Clutter family is supposed to be this beacon of the American dream, but they're murdered. You know, they're cut, their lives are all cut short. And then there is sort of the morality of the two murderers who are so brutal and just, that's why the book is called In Cold Blood. Yeah. I just think people at this time are very drawn in by the senselessness of sociopathic murders, (laughs) which is very dark, but it's just, I think that this would really blow up in today's consumer audience. Yeah. I also just wanted to pitch that I don't necessarily have a director in mind, but I think that someone who's directed a true crime docuseries for like Netflix or Hulu or something like that could like transition very easily into the director of this movie. So I don't I don't necessarily have a name in mind, but I think that that would be like a really easy bridge project. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So yeah, that's my number three. Woo! All right. We're on to mine number three pick. This is a very simple log line. Everyone's favorite president gets a movie. <laughs> is it Theodore Roosevelt? Yeah, obviously it's Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> well, behind well, he, Barack Obama. Who, I mean, isn't he everybody's favorite? Uh, oh, yeah, he, he's up there. But uh, yeah, yeah. who are you going to say? Oh, mine's Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yeah, like we get it. He made the highways. He's a hero. But <laughs> anyways, yeah. Theodore Roosevelt. So (laughs) there have been TV adaptations of certain points in his life. There have been History Channel specials. That Ken Burns, isn't there like a Ken Burns special? Oh yeah. 40 hours long. I tried to get through that and that's a, that's a bear. Uh, No, it's a Bull Moose. moose. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, I like Ken Burns as much as the next guy, but if you're telling me I need to watch 40 hours (laughs) of content for Teddy Roosevelt, well, I'm going to watch it. I did watch it. I love Teddy Roosevelt. He's the coolest person ever to live. He's done everything. He <laughs> he was obviously in the Rough Riders, but he was president. But but he was so much more than just those two things. He was and, almost assassinated. Right. And he finished his speech. Yeah, there's that famous story. Yeah, we're in the middle of the speech. He got shot and just continued on. And he was still bleeding, but he just continued on. Ah, what was the quote? I found the speech. So he got shot, but the bullet went into the manuscript, which is in his coat pocket. And mm-hmm. he said, like, fortunately, I had my manuscript. So you see, I was going to make a long speech. And there's a bullet. And he pulls that, pulls it out. This is where the bullet went through. And it probably saved me from going into my heart. And they just continued on with his speech. <laughs> That's so crazy. So, yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't have more to say other than that. I, I was The source material you can pull from is um, Edmund Morris's trilogy of Teddy Roosevelt 
biographies. He, he, this guy did so much that Edward Morris, famous biographer, had to write three 600-page biographies mm-hmm. on this guy. My favorite of the three is Theodore Rex, the second one, uh, which talks mostly about his presidency, but, you know, his whole life. So, yeah, it's insane to me how there hasn't been a theatrical film about him. Well, he about is him. portrayed by Robin Williams in the I, I know. The well, he would be... Yeah, here's the thing. He's dream casting. I mean, rest in peace. Uh, uh, a talent gone too soon. He proved his amazing impression that he could imbue the courage and the humor and the wisdom of this man and yeah rest in peace robin williams it, with today's modern day technology they could have aged him down for teddy mm-hmm. roosevelt's younger years but sadly I, I honestly don't know who you would cast i mean oh i have a pitch can he, yeah hear me g- out go ahead so i have read nick offerman's two biographies oh he'd be pretty he, good absolutely adores theodore roosevelt so as every second, american should well, yeah, <laughs> regardless of your political party <laughs> uh, you got to agree this man was pretty rad <laughs> yeah so he it so nick offerman discusses teddy roosevelt not only in his two books but he devotes an entire chapter to teddy roosevelt in his second book called gumption which is about americans who are most inspiring to him so I think that he could do a pretty good job. Not because, I mean, he looks passingly like Teddy Roosevelt, but I think he just has that, to use the word gumption, he sort of has that American spirit to him. (laughs) And as I was saying, I think with today's technology, you can age an actor down pretty convincingly. Mm. I mean, with the Marvel films have been doing that for the past like like, five years. It aged him up and aged him down. Yeah. 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 For For Infinity War. Yeah. I was thinking of the director and at first I'm like, Aaron Sorkin would write a kick-ass script, but he's a better writer than he is a director. Hmm. And then the name, this movie would need to have great dialogue since Teddy Roosevelt was such a witty, smart, astute speaker. So I think, honestly, someone who has mastered kind of 1800s era in America with her last film, that's right, her, Little Women, Greta Gerwig would write and direct an amazing Teddy oh, Roosevelt movie. Interesting. Yeah. Because, yeah, and so far she's only directed kind of smaller movies about women, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think her next step is to just create a big crowd-pleasing period Period piece. piece. Oh my goodness! Okay, we're on the same wavelength. You've convinced me I'm giving you a hundred million dollars that's too much to <laughs> well honestly if <laughs> no context it, it, it would be a long movie and I was gonna go with a safe pick of like Steven Spielberg at first since he did Lincoln but no this needs to be a crazy bang up Maybe it needs to be slightly limited in budget because sometimes when you're pushed and limited, that's gotcha. when you create amazing movies. Yeah, yeah, but still give yeah. it a good... So how about 75 million? Sure. <laughs> okay. All right. What's your number four pick? Cool. All right. I'm going to dive into this. My next feature might have been a little bit of a cheat because I think this might be in production, <laughs> but it is Tayari Jones' 2018 novel, An American Marriage. Oh, you heard of that? oh yeah, I remember I, when I you I read that. I think I mentioned it on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. So when I was doing research into this book, I found out that Oprah might have optioned it, but like back when it was published in 2018. So I have 
a theory that I can't substantiate that possibly COVID put this on hold. Mm, that's, yeah. I don't know, but I think that Oprah owns the rights to this at this point. So this could possibly be a movie coming out soon, post-COVID, I don't know. But I'm really hoping that this is made into a movie because this was another book that left a very lasting impression on me. Yeah. So basically, I didn't do my pitch, but basically the summary is that newlyweds Celestial and Roy are the embodiment of the American dream and the new South. They live in Atlanta. They're settling into their new routine when Ray is arrested for a rape that they both know he didn't commit. As Roy's sentence passes, Celestial begins to become more dependent on their mutual friend, Andre. After five years out of 12 of Roy's sentence in prison, his sentence is suddenly overturned. So he's free. And he comes back into a free life. But in five years, that's almost more than the relationship between Roy and Celestial had known each other. Right. So they have changed so much that Celestial has started kind of emotionally loving Andre. Oh, snap. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very emotional book. Like, there's just, there's so many levels of intensity to this novel. I think it brings insights into the hearts and minds of people who are bound and separated by forces outside of their control, specifically police brutality and racial issues in the justice system, obviously the black experience in America. This is something that I think everybody experiences if you've been in a relationship that ends very suddenly or unexpectedly. You have these ideas of what your life is going to look like down the road. And whether that involves children or marriage or moving in together, when that's taken away very unexpectedly, You have to deal with not only losing the other person in your partner, but also the loss of that future, Mm. right? And I think that that can be very, I mean, emotionally devastating. So I think that there's a lot to unpack in this very short novel. It's beautifully written. It was one of Oprah's picks for her book club. It won the Women's Prize for Fiction, the NAACP Image Award. It's very critically acclaimed. I got very emotional reading it and also learning a lot about things that I won't necessarily ever experience because I'm white. Um, So it was a very educational book for me. And I actually have like a full cast. (laughs) So I'm going to start with Celestial and Roy. I think who would make an incredible Celestial is Janelle Monae. Oh, yeah. I love her. Who doesn't? I mean, again, everything she's in, she's incredible. Her music is incredible, too. Incredible singer. I mean, she could honestly co-write a new song for this. Yeah. Which could be nominated for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards. So anyway, I think she's amazing. I think she would kill it in this role. And for Roy, I think Kingsley Bedadier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's in the One Night in Miami. uh, Yeah. But he's also... Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was also in season two of The OA, uh, a very underrated Netflix series that I love. It was canceled after its second season. But he's he's in the second season. He plays the main character, the PI, which I I just love stories about private investigators. But he's so cool, so slick, so badass. I love the guy. Yeah, I think that he's really great. He's got a wonderful presence. Obviously, you'd have to 
have to play Malcolm X yeah. in a movie. So, and he's about the same age. So yeah. I think that that pairing would be like really, really good. Um, and then for Andre, David Diggs, he's a personal favorite of oh, mine. Yeah. And I think he also has that sort of quiet presence that Celestial would turn to as a sort of friend that she was very comfortable around and growing up, having grown up with. But then because she's had a longer relationship with Andre, she starts to realize that like, maybe that's actually more what she wanted out of a relationship than Roy. Uh So I think that he sort of has that presence that I could see him really executing well. Yeah. In this movie. So what do you think of my my top three? I, I like I couldn't I just like Hey Lore. Like, thank hey, you Lore, so much. Look yeah. at me. What? You just named three people who everyone likes. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> we're ca- we're casting. Okay. We're casting. Yeah, I just like they're but like I couldn't stop my mind from like thinking of casting and directing for all of these books that I just would like really like to see. Yeah come into uh being so anyway those are my picks all right here's my number four pick the log line you ready yes how do you stage a mutiny when you're only awake one day in a million what how do you conspire when your tiny handful of potential allies changes with each job shift trapped aboard the starship erofia Sunday as Munden, that's her name, Sunday and Munden, is about to discover the components of any successful revolution. Conspiracy, code, and unavoidable casualties. Yeah, I'm talking about a movie adaptation of Peter Watts's The Freeze Frame Revolution. Whoa. I, re- I feel like I remember when you were reading that book. Yeah. But that, I don't remember the synopsis, and that sounds insane. So it is pretty cool. The book is not amazing like you think it would be based off the premise. So that's why I think the movie would need to tweak it a little bit plot wise. That's fair. And I'm not going to fully explain why just because A, I'm not a great writer so I don't have the answers and B, I don't want to give away Mm -hmm. what the book does with its plot. But basically it's about this crew that's in cryosleep and they all work for a hundred days and then they go to sleep for like a thousand years and then another crew wakes up work a hundred days and so it's like every time you wake up to do a job a thousand years have passed on earth and and their job is basically so in this future you travel through wormholes but every wormhole has a gate throughout the universe and obviously you can't have a place be a wormhole if a gate isn't already there so this starship is just traveling into the vast openness of the universe just putting gates everywhere so wormholes can appear and that that spaceships can travel there but here's the whole paradox of it all yes they're creating this intergalactic highway system but it's taking, you know, literally millions and millions of years. So what what does society look like? What do humans look like when you start and it's 2200 AD and then you wake up and then it's 3200 AD and then a couple work cycles down the line, it's like 10,000 AD. Like, like, like what is travel? In a million years, will wormholes need to exist? And basically... What's the point? If, yeah, what's the point of yeah. our existence? And... 
are we really doing anything and what's the real mission here or is there a mission is it serving anyone yeah currently and huh. the spaceship is run by an ai and i know what you're thinking oh a ai wow. to, yeah 2001 <laughs> a space odyssey and that's where the story would need to be tweaked a bit because as amazing as the premise is you can tell really quickly that oh it's an ai obviously something is up the AI is a female AI in this story. You know, it has a female voice. Groundbreaking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But it basically is Hal. But, but the story is not about an evil AI, although that is a big component of the novel. It's a novella, I should say. It's uh, about uh, less than 200 pages. And it came out in 2018. Did I say that? Uh, anyways... It does leave a little bit to be desired at the end, so it needs to be tweaked. But the cool thing about it is it very much is like a play, you know, because it takes place at one, you know, spaceship, one location. But it's, it's how, as the logline, as I was saying, it's like, how do you stage a mutiny? So they're staging a mutiny against the AI. Yeah. But how do you do that when you don't know if you'll see another person in like 2,000 years or 10,000 years or you don't know when you'll wake up with a certain crew? Because, oh, yeah, that's another thing. When you wake up, it's all randomized. So oh. your crew is different every single time. Mm -hmm. So it's just an, a very That's interesting tough. thing. <laughs> but a director that I think could tackle this, since it is this sci-fi epic, but it very much resembles a play in that it's in one location with characters entering and exiting, a person who directed a movie that felt like a play on the screen was Corey Finley, who directed Thoroughbreds. And he Ooh. also directed uh, Bad Education, which is one of my favorite movies of... Thoroughbreds. That's of, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I love Thoroughbreds, too. But Bad Education, uh, I think I like that even more. That very much feels like a play, too, even though it's different locations. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was a play. play. Yeah. 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 Similar idea where yeah. it takes place in a very restricted area. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just a huge fan of Corey Finley, so I think he could Ooh, do yeah. cool. an amazing... Uh, if he finally turns this sci-fi and i think the lead sunday could be played by an actress sunita manny who was in a little indie film save yourselves which we saw oh we yeah. went to the drive-in yeah saw drive -in. That during covid yeah save yeah. yourselves not a great movie but yeah. sunita manny is a i think a pretty arresting actress and she was oh fun yeah. fact she was That's in the uh yeah. the get down for what Music, music video? video yeah what that was her first role actually that's nuts she I is a, thought about that yeah. in like 12 years <laughs> she has a dancing background so i think she'd be a good uh, main character yeah. yeah great script until the very end the save yourselves yeah movie. fun really fun movie until the last like 30 yeah minutes, until they just kind of just completely implodes yeah, yeah. so yeah freeze frame revolution if you're a fan of sci-fi i would definitely recommend it Although, because it kind of drops the ball in the end, just like the movie Save Yourselves, um, I wouldn't recommend it outside of uh, the sci-fi fandom. Sure. So yeah. I think the movie would definitely need to add to the story and change the ending. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, all right. All right. <sighs> Coming final up pick. on my final pick. All right. So this is going to have to be an indie movie. I don't see this getting picked up by a big studio. But here's the logline. Calixa is left at home while her husband and son go into town. While they're gone, a storm hits and prevents them re from returning. While the storm rages, a former lover shows up and fucks Calixa. The storm passes, her husband and son return, and life goes on. 
Kahooksa? <laughs> I'm interested. Do you know what I'm... <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm describing? It is actually a short story by Kate Chopin called The Storm. Okay, Chopin. Let's it was <laughs> It was published posthumously in 1969, but she wrote it in 1898. What? <laughs> and some okay, well, just full disclosure, I love everything that Kate Chopin has ever written in her life. She wrote The Awakening. I think that's the piece that most people are familiar uh-huh. with. Yep. But her writing is salacious. Like she has the hottest writing of any author I've ever read. I mean, I'll just be honest. Like, she's incredible. Her writing is so passionate. And something that I really enjoy about her, obviously, writing like this was so far and beyond what American audiences would have accepted as permissible during her time. And so I'm actually not surprised that this short story was published after her death because it was probably just like, it probably would have been banned like The Awakening in every single state of America. But oh my gosh, the themes of female sexual liberation, of a lack of consequences for extramarital affairs from females not males because i like that's normal right like men are expected at this point to have extramarital affairs and not have consequences Uh but the fact that this beautiful sexy woman has this affair during this storm which is already creating this like tension and (laughs) you think the thrill in the first few lines is that like her husband and son like there's going to be an accident you know and they don't get home or something like that but no like her former lover comes riding up on a horse and seduces her and they have this passionate affair for a couple hours and then he leaves and that's hot it. near I know, right? <laughs> turn on the ac <laughs> right? so so the reason i say that i don't think this would be picked up by a major studio is because it is a short story and so i feel like there would have to be sort of a slow build of her sort of everyday life to make this into a feature length film. I think this would have to sort of go into a very slow build of her being disconnected from her family life and not necessarily having fantasies about a lover, but just showing that discontent and then showing how this is maybe her first act in defiance of her domestic life Mm -hmm. so someone that i thought about because she's one of my favorite actors as well is uh rachel mcadams yeah i think she would be great in that sort of role so yeah it's again it's a very short story but i think it could be lengthened in a very fun interesting way awesome yeah great pick cool yeah it's one of my favorite short stories i mean it's like i mean i'll just be honest like (laughs) Break out a fan <laughs> if you want to read Have a glass this. of wine. Have a glass of wine, break out a fan, and uh, enjoy. Yeah, a cigarette <laughs> to take the edge off. <laughs> and right. a cigarette when you're done reading. <laughs> yeah. Now on to my final pick. Ooh. All right, here's my log line. An extraterrestrial object. That's right, I'm going sci-fi again. Uh-oh. An extraterrestrial... Didn't see that coming. Yep. An extraterrestrial object is discovered off the coast of California. Hey, hey, we live there. A sphere that can transport humans to other solar systems. Death row inmate Russell Harris and nine other convicts are given the chance to save their lives by agreeing to travel as test subjects on the transporter. 
but when the first volunteer dies a gruesome death, it becomes clear to Russell and his comrades that the venture is a little more than a merciless death mission on which they will perish. Yeah. Wow. I'm talking about the 2016 novel Transport by Philip P. Peterson. Interesting. Triple P. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Philip K. Dick. Yeah, almost. right. Yeah. Now, this book, Picture Arrival Meets the Dirty Dozen. I love it. That yeah. sounds amazing. Two of my favorite movies, Arrival and Dirty Dozen, couldn't be more different, com- <laughs> combined to make a new story, Transport. Now, the reason I picked this very much like the freeze frame revolution, it's amazing until the end. Now, ah. this is a story. I don't know if you remember me reading yeah, this. Yeah, I remember you telling but, me about it. But listeners, you know when you're reading a book and you're just like, oh man, I can't freaking wait to recommend this to everyone I, I run into. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm so excited. I can't freaking wait to just tell everyone. <laughs> I can't wait to go on Facebook and be like, oh, I read this book and everyone should read this. That's how I was feeling about Transport. It combined everything that I liked about Arrival, which is kind of that meditative like sci-fi story, which is really about human emotion and, and discovery and also that stretch of arrival where it's the unknown where there's that fear and in, mm-hmm. in, in venturing into it, a ufo not knowing what will happen will the ufo suffocate me will the ufo be violent mm. well and that's the same case with this and i can't tell you how fun it is to read about these characters figuring out the transport system and and how it works and what happens when you do this and you go to this planet and you know there are gnarly deaths as, mm-hmm. as stated in the log line and there's a lot of trial and error but i love when sci-fi movies have scenes where they just explain shit on a whiteboard you know oh, where, where yeah. they just like write stuff down and it's a very complex issue that's why i like tenet so much so okay tenet is a <laughs> wild movie one of the most confusing confounding movies ever made ever made disclosure we still don't understand it <laughs> yeah i mean it's crazy that it was made in the first place i know that christopher nolan warner brothers will make anything that man uh <laughs> cooks up but it's crazy that tenet exists because it is batshit insane bonkers but I love that movie because there are multiple scenes where they just write down on whiteboards <laughs> and explain how time works. And I'm like, I'm all for this. I love... And the same thing happened in Arrival when they explained the alien's language and yeah. how the ship works. Oh, I was all over yeah. that shit. Don't even get me started. And the same thing happens in Transport where they explain how the transporter works. And just the mechanics of it and the alien technology, it is so cool. Combine that with a really cool plot of inmates being used as test rats, basically. That, like, expands the morality of yeah. death row because, yeah, right. obviously, there's a lot of moral issues of that. But right, to exactly. push it even further yeah. to make them into lab rats, like, um, that's but, next level. But here's the thing, guys and gals. Uh-oh doesn't stick the landing it rushes it's like a 400 page book and it takes its time and i love that about the book i loved how it just took its time but then the last 50 pages it it felt like philip p peterson was writing three books in 50 pages it's insane how much plot is shoved into that and there's a sequel to this book there are two sequels actually but the sequel has like nothing to do with the first book, really. And it felt like the last 50 pages of, of this book could have been the sequel itself. Huh. 
it's insane to me how hard Philip P. Peterson dropped the ball. I mean, it is one of the biggest cases of wasted potential I've ever read in this case. What a bummer. So it is an amazing premise, an amazing three-fourths of a book, Mm -hmm. but a filmmaker needs to come in there and tweak the ending and maybe just make it a contained story. Don't even do don't even set up a sequel. You don't you don't need it. Yeah. I think the man for the job, I worship everything this man puts out. Uh, I worship oh, I, the man himself. Denis Villeneuve. No. Nope. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I do Sorry. worship Denis Villeneuve, <laughs> but I, I don't it's too similar to Arrival for him to gotcha. do it okay. again. So I have cut you off. Sorry. Alex Garland. Oh, yeah. gotcha. The, the visionary who wrote and directed Ex Machina. The visionary who adapted Annihilation, which mm-hmm. we covered on this podcast. Do you know how big the poster of Ex Machina is in our apartment? It's like 10 feet right. tall. Right, <laughs> but Annihilation we yeah. covered we yeah. covered on this podcast. Well, but I I like Ex Machina, but I, don't, yeah. I didn't love Annihilation. But right, yeah. but Ex Machina is amazing. The visionary who wrote and directed the series Devs on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Go watch hey, that. Nick Offerman. Yeah. yeah. And he also wrote... And secretly directed one of my favorite action movies, Dread. Oh, yeah, he, he wrote he wrote the movie, but Carl Urban said because the uh, original director was fired, but he like still was on set. It was one of those weird situations where hmm. the studio wasn't happy with the direction he was going. So Carl Urban has stated that Alex Garland has secretly directed most of Dread. Just someone else is credited because of how the director's union works, the huh. director's guild. So, love Alex Garland. He could totally kill it adapting this story. He he's the right person. He, it fits his style and his uh, tone of his work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Alex Garland would kill it. Maybe the lead Sterling K. Brown. I'm a huge fan of him. So, Alex Garland, get on that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that could either be a Netflix or a, a Hulu movie yeah. or maybe HBO Max. With a rewrite. <laughs> yeah, with a rewrite. All right, that about does it. We went way over <laughs> the As time allotted. Yeah. But yeah, that's par for the course for us. But thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, is that is that our next one? Yeah, oh, well, wow. I can't wait for that one. And yeah. yeah, and look forward to more great stories in the future uh, yeah. for, for the season. I, we're also going to tackle The Godfather soon. So, yeah. I mean, The Godfather is the godfather of movies. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I've, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, so, my don't gosh. give anything away. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on, on the, the next, next one. one. <laughs>